Dagon's Illusion, Episode 12, The Mansion Within. Robert Dagon sat rigid. There was no hurrying the process, he knew that. The electricity was off and the only light came from a candle on the table next to him. Beside it was the open box that held the three ugly stones. Their strange hum had grown louder. He was waiting for the first sign, flickering shadows at the edge of vision. If they didn't come, nothing else would happen. Five minutes later, one appeared, streaking through the darkness. He struggled not to look at it. He had to stay focused. Soon the first shadow was followed by others, some large, some small. Then came the second sign. The humming vibration passed into his body. He gasped as spasms of pleasure shot through him. So little he knew about this. When the stones had been discovered buried on the grounds of the mansion, there hadn't been a user's guide. A year later, in an ancient slave tunnel, a treasure trove had been unearthed. Among many Persian artifacts were translations that purported to be of an ancient manuscript no longer in existence. One night he had performed the required disciplines. The stones had begun to hum, and he had seen a vision. Before him had appeared a mysterious city built in huge concentric rings around a mountain with a ziggurat at the top. The city was a labyrinth. For only a moment it had remained, then it had faded and he had never seen it again. The brief vision had prompted Dagon to enter into a study of Lemuria and Atlantis the powerful mythological civilizations that some believed existed before the Great Flood. Atlantis, with its capital on a continent in the Atlantic Ocean between Gibraltar and America, had died in a terrible cataclysm, sinking deep into the ocean. The myths whispered that the Atlanteans were a vicious warlike people with scientific knowledge far beyond anything known today. Some believed that it was their evil that had brought the judgment of the gods upon the earth and Lemuria, another vast civilization, but this one centered on a lost continent, either in the South Pacific or the Indian Ocean. They, too, had technology so advanced that it would make anything in the 21st century look primitive. But Lemuria was known for strange spirituality as well. Some thought that it was to Lemuria that the sons of the gods had come from the stars to procreate with human women, and from that union the giants were born. Even after deep study of the translations, there were huge gaps in Dagon's knowledge, because the original manuscript had contained portions in an unknown language. This much he believed. The stones were Lemurian because the city that had appeared was built on a mountain, just as the legends had said, and also because their power was focused on spiritual and physical ecstasy. The reverberating waves of pleasure that came from them were meant to be ridden, if done circumspectly, Dagon believed that a lost world might open for his exploration, the world before the flood. Perhaps somewhere in the ghostly city of Lemuria might exist the secret to controlling the elemental powers of the cosmos. Clearly the stones were part of a technology meant to open invisible doors. He surmised that hidden beneath their odd exteriors were crystals encoded with information and the ones who had created them must have had minds far stronger than his. From brief experimentation, he knew that the process was dangerous, because the orgasmic shocks were so thrilling that a rider was tempted to lose himself in pure ecstasy. But if that were allowed, the human brain would fry. 
It took all his will to direct the energy away from the physical. From the translations, he had learned that optimum power was to be obtained during a storm, and the larger the storm, the more spiritual energy was available. So like a true neophyte, he had chosen one of the greatest hurricanes of recorded history. But it was more than that. He chose it because it embodied the monster that his enemies had loosed on the world. As Dagon struggled to keep himself from burning up in a shrieking orgasm, he began to hear things. The strange sounds outside congealed into eerie voices. Some whispered, some screamed, and slowly he began to understand what they were saying. They were cursing him, and the mansion was answering with creaks and groans that were a language. The building was alive, and it was cursing him too. From somewhere came a grinding screech as though a huge door were opening. A crash shook the room, and the candle went out. Instantly, the orgasmic shocks ended, leaving him in a trembling dislocation. Switching on a flashlight, he picked up the godstone. It was almost too hot to handle. Staring at it, he opened himself and whispered, "'Masters, I have ridden you. Now let your spirits ride in me.' Into him came an intense desire to get up and walk across the room. The desire pulled him to the narrow door that led up into the tower. Outside, the wind was screaming." As Dagon climbed the stairs, he looked at his hand holding the stone. His skin was glowing. Was he still in his body? Maybe not. Maybe his flesh remained in the chair, but it didn't feel that way. At the top of the staircase, he emerged into the room that he knew so well. Under the central beam hung the crucifix. The constant lightning flashes turned the darkness into a flickering half-day. Outside was a cauldron of hell. The trees were lashing themselves to death, and the rain was so heavy that he could barely see. Below was the yard behind the mansion. In it lay the ruin that had become the focal point of his life, a stone labyrinth, and at its heart a crumbling mausoleum. He hated the mausoleum because he knew what was buried there. As Dagon looked down through the window, in the raging storm something became visible. It was outside the labyrinth. Suddenly the rain parted almost like a curtain. Beneath the ground, just beyond the outer ring, appeared a cold, rippling fire. In it he saw hundreds of bodies lying side by side in a mass grave, bodies wearing clothes from long ago, some African, some white, some in the rags of slaves and others in the garments of the wealthy, hundreds of people rotting in a circle of death. Lift me now, turn me so our eyes can see. A voice whispered the words in his brain. Dagon lifted the stone, but the turning was never completed. An explosion smashed him to the floor. He lay with ears ringing and fire everywhere. Lightning had struck the tower. In a shock, he looked up. The crucifix was still suspended under the beam, but the roof had been torn away and high above in the raging clouds... He saw her, and she saw him. With a roar, the wind picked him up and threw him down the stairs. Covered with blood, Dagon landed on the floor of his apartment. It was a shrieking hell. The boards had been ripped from the windows, and the glass had shattered. Books, pictures, lamps, and furniture were flying through the air. The only thing that hadn't moved was the table with the stones. Dimly he remembered the stone he was holding. With all his strength, he clung to it. 
the wind picked him up and pitched him down another flight of stairs. After that, everything turned into eerie mist and endless crashing. Sweet darkness, then dimness, then slow awakening. There was a roar in Dagon's head, a roar that echoed with music. What was this? An orchestra was playing. How absurd! He tried to make it go away, but it wouldn't. The orchestra was playing a precise minuet. Robert Dagan opened his eyes. Soft light shimmered around him. Slowly his vision began to focus. The light was coming from dozens of candles and oil lamps. He was seated in a large chair in a long room, no, not a room, a hall, and ghosts were drifting through the light. Beautiful women in long gowns, tall men dressed in gray. Not ghosts, people. Where was he? He struggled to make his mind work. From countless journeys into mysterious dimensions, he had trained himself to observe every detail. But this time his brain just couldn't put it together. The gowns, new but old, and the uniforms. Confederate uniforms, oh God! He looked around. He was in the main hall of the mansion, but gone were the display cases and the posters. Gone was the huge mural leading up the stairs. From where he was sitting, Dagon could see couples dancing in the grand ballroom. A group of young officers stopped in front of him and bowed. When they spoke in their voices was the honey of the old south. Good evening, sir. Wonderful gathering for such a sad occasion. Our condolences to you and your lovely wife, sir. As they bent close, he examined their faces. Young, but not young. And when he stared straight into their eyes, they stepped back. They were afraid of him. If only the haze would leave his brain. The officers walked away. Unsteadily, Dagon rose to his feet. He was weak and dizzy, and his stomach was churning. Trying to steady himself, he turned and looked into a mirror. He was wearing the uniform of a Confederate Major General. With a rush, the dizziness vanished. He was back here. As he clung to the chair, a middle-aged black butler approached and bowed. General Dagon, sir, the mistress is calling for you. Dagon stared at him. Are you all right, sir? What? The mistress is calling for you, sir. The mistress? Yes, sir, and she wants to see you right away. The physicians, they've done all they can. They say she'll pass within the hour. Please, General, follow me. Dagon stared at him. Who are you? I've never seen you here before. For a moment their eyes locked, but the man didn't answer. He just turned and walked away. As Dagon moved through the crowd, men and women glanced furtively at him, avoiding his eyes. The same fear was in all their faces. Why didn't he recognize anyone? He should know them all. He had known each of the little parasites that clung to her. Following the butler, slowly he began climbing the candle-lit staircase. Everything was just as he remembered. The wall covered with dozens of ornately framed daguerreotype photographs. He froze. In one frame he saw his own face. He was posed stiffly beside a gorgeous woman who was seated in a chair. A wedding photograph. He was in uniform and she was wearing an exquisite gown of white lace. Slowly he touched the glass. Where was he? Where was she? So weak. If only his strength would come back, he had to find her. 
The butler's voice hurried him on. Please, sir, there's little time. Up they went, past the second floor, then on to the third. The one that was, is, would be his private apartment. But in this mansion everything was different. At the top of the stairs there was a long hall, and at the end loomed a massive door. He touched the wall. Where were the doors? There were supposed to be doors here. One of them led to his wife's chambers, but they were gone. Instead of doors, the wall was covered with what appeared to be a huge genealogy, thousands of names structured into intersecting spider lines that narrowed in the direction he was walking. Beside each name was an ancient symbol, Egyptian, Celtic, Chinese, Indian, Mayan, and a hundred more, many he didn't recognize. Above the genealogy in crimson script was written the name of this ages-old family, the royal lineage of the Merovingians. By the time he reached the great door, all the names had narrowed down to one, Robert Arthur Dagon, the final name of thousands. And beside it was the symbol of his life, a broken labyrinth. As he stared, the butler knocked softly, then turned the knob. When the door opened, Dagon was almost overcome with the reek of camphor. In a somber voice, the butler intoned, Madam, the general has arrived. Then he stepped back and ushered Dagon into a room of shadows. Softly, the door closed. He was in a spacious bedroom with dark wood-paneled walls and heavy curtains. The only light came from a shaded oil lamp next to a gigantic canopied bed. The sheer curtains were drawn, and in the dimness he could see nothing inside. The room was oppressively hot. Sweat began dripping down his face. Panic! Suddenly he was struggling for air. More than anything, he wanted to turn and run. He was just about to do it when a soft voice called his name. Robert? The sound made his skin crawl. Robert, is that you? Come here, my dear heart. The words were followed by agonized coughing. When the fit passed, the voice spoke again. What's the matter, Robert? Are you afraid? The mighty general is afraid of a dying woman? Come to me at once. Slowly Dagon walked toward the bed, and with every step his revulsion grew. More coughing. When the spasm passed, the voice was weaker. My very, very dear friend, how good of you to come to me in my hour of need. Please sit down. Beside the bed was a chair, but he remained standing, staring in horror at the curtain. No, all right, stand then, or kneel. Isn't that what people do in the presence of the dead? She laughed softly. So your little war is, is going well. Soon you will be victorious. Such a false expenditure of souls when the cause is futile. But why waste these precious moments on the trivialities of physical extermination? It is a far greater war that concerns you and me. I want to see my wife, madam. Where is she? You could barely get the words out. Madam, how very formal. 
There was a time when you were much more intimate. Or have you forgotten? Suddenly he felt ill. I ask again, where is my wife? The transition. Do you feel it? The great storm is almost upon us. Such moments are fraught with opportunity. But tell me, are the festivities going well? Is the orchestra to your liking? Are there many lovely women to tempt your eyes? She sighed. What an excellent way to leave this hellish world. Give a great ball for all those who hate your very life. And, my dear Robert, no one hates me more than you. She coughed again. When she spoke, her voice had changed. I summoned you here to inform you of a bequest. You will be pleased to know that I have remembered you in my will. I want nothing that you have touched. Where is Anna? Such lack of gratitude. Nevertheless, you shall receive it. A very special gift will be waiting in your home. But you must search for it. Promise me that you will search. Give me your hand, my very dear one. From behind the curtain appeared a graceful female hand. On a finger was a ring with a crimson moon. Dagon drew back as though from a serpent. What, not even the solace of a human touch as I pass into eternity? Then let it be so. Find my gift, Robert. Your continued existence depends upon it. It has been carefully hidden. When you open it, you will know what to do. Now look at my face one last time, and remember. The curtain drew back. Dagon gasped. On the bed lay the wasted form of a small woman. Once she had been stunningly beautiful, and the shadow of that loveliness remained upon her, but her hair had fallen out, her skin was wrinkled and pockmarked with disease and dissipation. Most awful of all were her eyes. In them was endless hunger. Staggering back, Dagon rushed for the door. Behind him there was a coughing laugh. Farewell, my beloved. You will find Anna soon. Wasn't she a wonderful creation? Running from the room, he almost knocked over the butler. Leaping down flights of stairs, he lurched out into the main hallway, straight into the crowd. Instantly the music and dancing stopped. Everyone turned to look at him. He yelled, Where is my wife? Anna, where are you? Suddenly a woman's voice screamed, Robert! Turning, he looked up. At the top of the stairs stood the beautiful woman from the wedding photograph. She was dressed in black and her eyes were filled with terror. Robert, burn the house, burn it to the ground. Do you hear me? Keep nothing, burn it all. Calling her name, he started toward her. But with the first step, she became a shadow and his consciousness vanished in a roaring dark.